0: Most of you know the expression to pass the baton. It's an expression used, of course, in, in track and field in a relay race where a runner will be running with a, a baton about 12, 14 inches, a cylinder, it's light, but the, and they run around the track and then he asks to pass the baton to the next runner who takes it and does a lap around the track, and so it goes for four runners. Now, they... The, the unique thing about this event is not just the speed in which you run, but the ability to maintain a high speed and still pass the baton on to the next runner. And th- that pass, that passing of the baton is critical. If you drop the baton, you're eliminated, you're disqualified. If, if you bobble the baton and, and it, you have to slow down, the, the this next runner has to slow down to get the baton, then the other runners have an advantage over you. So it, it's critical that you pass the baton well. Now, we see this in track and field. We also see this in life. We have it as an expression of life. To pass the baton is to, is to pass on to someone else taking your responsibilities or your role. A father may do it to a son, or a father may do it to a daughter who's taking his business. It, it, it's, it's saying, okay, this is the job that I had, and now you're doing the job. And, and, and our desire is that you do it well. And you do it joyfully. They're given responsibility. They're given authority. But but there should be a joy in the passing of the baton. I've done this. This is what I love about the internship here. Is we're passing on to these younger men. Truths that hopefully will serve them well for years long after I'm in the grave. So so the idea is to pass the baton on. Now in, in this passage in John chapter 14. Jesus is in his final week of ministry. It really, John chapter 13 all the way to the end is one week of his ministry. And Jesus is comforting his disciples, and he's challenging them. What he's doing is he's passing on the baton. Earlier in chapter 14, he's already said that I'm going to go away to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back to take you to be where I am. And so until that happens, until he comes back, he wants them to continue in the task that he's given them. He's giving them the baton. Now, you can imagine these disciples had to be tremendously challenged by this. I mean, for goodness sake, they're bringing you this gospel in a hostile context, in a very antagonistic environment, and Jesus isn't going to be here? And you want us to carry on this race? You want us to keep going with this mission to the world? You can imagine it. So Jesus, in our text, is wanting to comfort them. He's wanting to encourage them. You will do what I do, is what he promises. This passage, it's a big promise to us. You will do what he has done. You'll even do greater things. And then he gives reasons why you and I can have so much hope. So turn with me, if you will. I want to look at 2013. What would God be calling us to do as a church, as a body? So 2013... Uh, come with me to uh, John fourteen twelve to 14. We'll just look at these three verses. John chapter 14, verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's that's bold. I mean, that's generous. It's overwhelming. Look with me in verse 12, because there's kind of two promises tucked in the first part of this verse. He says, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and and greater works than these he will do. So let me explain these, but... But, but right in the beginning, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's kind of a, a solemn statement. Jesus uses this repeatedly throughout his gospel to try to grab our attention, to rivet our mind, to say, hey, what I'm about to say to you, I really want you to lock down on. He says, I want to remove any doubt, any confusion, any fear. This will happen. I want you to be assured that what follows this will occur. And so he, he wants us, he's really drawing on faith. He's appealing to you to believe that if he says this, it's going to happen. And what he says is that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Now that's kind of bold because when you think about some of the things Jesus did, I mean, they were spectacular. He's raising the dead. He's cleansing the leper. He's freeing the demonized. He's calming the forces of nature. He knows the hidden thoughts of men. I mean, he did some spectacular works. Now, I also want to say he did some ordinary works what we would consider ordinary. I mean, he did teach and bless children. He did disciple men. He did offer forgiveness to prostitutes. He did eat with sinners. He did preach the gospel. He did care and exercise genuine compassion to people. So in Jesus, he has done both spectacular and what we would consider very ordinary Works Now, are these the works that we're called to do? So when I give you this, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Does this mean that you and I have to do exactly the same works? Should we be, at least in evidencing our faith, should we be doing these miraculous works like he did? I'm not sure he's driving at that. I'm not sure Jesus is saying, you're going to be a duplicate of me. I'm not sure Jesus is saying that I did these 18 things, so you're going to do these 18 things. I think what he's saying is that you're going to continue the ministry that I've started. So collectively, as a church, we will walk in these works. I don't think that means that we have to do all these miraculous works. Why? Well, because these gifts of miracles are just that. They're gifts. And Paul, even to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church, of course, thought that we have all the gifts. And so Paul even said to them, he says, do all speak in tongues? Do all do acts and miracles? In other words, the implication is no, not all. He says this, he says, if all were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? You know, if all were an ear, where would the sense of seeing be? So the implication is that the works that we do will be varied, but, but together as a church, we're going to be doing all the things that Jesus has done. So he says, these are the works that you'll do. Now, secondarily, I I just want to remind you, in this age of infatuation with miracles, remember, miracles were physical demonstrations of power, and they were done for the purposes of advancing a spiritual truth. So the miracles that Jesus performed were trying to prove to a people that a new age was dawning that God's kingdom was being established, that God was beginning to reclaim his kingdom, and these evidences of power were just proving that. So in other words, if I come and say to you, hey, I'm bringing a kingdom, and I don't do anything different than anybody else, you won't believe me. But if I come and say, hey, I'm going to bring, God's kingdom is now come, and I start raising the dead, and I start freeing the demonized, and I start healing the sick, and I begin to call nature, you're going to begin to think, Whoa, there is a different order happening here. The way that we've always known life is now being turned upside down. Something is truly happening. So that's the idea of the miracles. So when Jesus is saying, you'll do the works I'm going to be doing, you're going to be doing in deed and in word, the preaching of the gospel, the exercising of kindness, the feeding of the poor, the things that Jesus did, the caring for people. It may not be in the same spectacular way, but it will be the same work. Now, notice, though, in the text that he says, whoever believes in me will do the work. So so church, for the Christian here, if you claim a belief in Christ, you're the ones he's speaking to. Whoever believes in me will do these works. So he's not saying just to the apostles, you're going to be the ones that do it. He's not saying to those trained in seminary and those who studied languages and apologetics, you're the ones that will do the work. The rest will watch you do it. He's not saying elders and deacons and leadership teams will do the works that I do. But whoever believes in me, he doesn't say the smart and the intelligent and the, and the well-spoken and the beautiful, you'll do the works I'm doing. No, he says, whoever believes in me will do these works. So do you believe this, church? I mean, do you believe that you will do the works of Christ? I mean, do you see the requirement here? It is simply faith. It isn't prior training, it isn't educational background, it isn't ethnic heritage, it's just whoever believes in me, if you believe in me. Have you stepped back last year and thought, well, we'll let the professionals handle it. We'll let the staff or those in leadership handle the works of Jesus. I mean, doing the works of Jesus are simply working with the refugees, I mean, instructing children, inviting A non-believer over for a meal. I mean, these are the works of Jesus. They're often very ordinary. Are you doing these? Do you feel drawn to do these? Incidentally, you'll notice, whoever believes in me, this means that the the person who wants to do good in the world apart from Christ isn't doing the work of Jesus. So, I mean, I, I knew a man who pastored in Washington for 15 years before he came to faith. He was doing all kinds of good works, all kinds of of wonderful, charitable things. But they weren't the works of Jesus because he had no faith in Jesus. So whoever believes in me will do these works. That's the call. That's the promise he's making to you. So as you kind of scrutinize your life right now, which I would ask you to be doing, are you doing the works? Here's one other warning for you. Many of you are doing the works, but you think that, well, they're not really that big a deal. So they're really not the works of Jesus. They're like these sub-works of Jesus. Many of you, I will often hear in conversation, you will depreciate the things that you do because you don't feel it measures up to the neighbor's works. That's not part of this. All these are the works. So some of you, I want to move you from doing nothing to doing the works of Jesus. And some of you who are doing the works of Jesus, I want to move you from kind of depreciating them because they're not as glossy and and as pretty and neat and I, I want to upbuild you and say, but those are the works of Jesus. And rejoice that you're doing that. But, but he goes on. It, it, just this, you can embrace what I'm saying right now. But look at the next thing he says. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these who will do. Now, what does this mean? I mean, some of you, all of us, will do greater works. Does this mean greater miracles? I mean, Jesus raised the dead. He took a couple loaves and fed 5,000 people. I mean, will we do greater, how can you do greater than that? I mean, how can you do, how can you one-up a resurrection? It's kind of hard to do, right? So what does he mean by this? I mean, you don't hear any apostle walking on water. You don't hear any apostle raising a dead man after four days in the tomb. So what does he mean? Well, I think at least, at least in terms of quantity, or scope, or influence. I think it is true. I think the church has done greater works. Think about Jesus You know, for just a minute. Jesus had 120 followers, we read, in Jerusalem. Maybe he had 500 followers in Galilee, but Peter preaches one time and 3,000 come. I, I mean, the, the preaching of the apostles was far greater than Jesus. The footprint of Jesus' ministry, it was a small section of Israel, and yet by the end of the The first generation of apostles most believe that Paul got to Spain, and Thomas may have even preached to India. There's an early church planted there. Some feel the apostle got all the way to India. They, They went further than Jesus. Jesus never penned a word. The apostles produced the New Testament. Jesus never planted a church. Within the first generation, churches were scattered throughout the Mediterranean Basin. So I I think when he says, you will do greater works, I think that's been historically true. The scope and the impact of the ministry of Jesus' followers has been greater than Jesus. But I think there's more at play here, and this is where I want you to think with me. It's not just a a quantitative difference. I think there's a qualitative difference to the works that we do Versus Jesus. Now let me explain it. When Jesus was preaching, he was preaching the forgiveness of God, reconciliation with God, eternal life, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But all of Jesus' preaching was in anticipation to something happening. So Jesus didn't actually see all these things occur while he was ministering in the flesh. But when Jesus died, And he rose from the dead, and he ascended to the Father. See, here's the clue. He says there, he says, And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. See, the ascension of Jesus at the right hand of God, things change now. So the forgiveness and the reconciliation with God, the eternal life that was promised and anticipated is now realized because he's at the right hand. In other words, because Jesus is at the right hand of God, there's a new order, there's a new established way of life that that has been confirmed by the Spirit coming. The Spirit of God has come because Jesus has gone to the Father, and now the Spirit enables us to do these greater works. So what's that mean? What that means is this, that when you preach the gospel, men and women are actually converted. It, It isn't in anticipation of a conversion. They are actually converted. That, that, that men leave from darkness to light and death to life, and they were at enmity with God, and now they're adopted as sons. You see this in Acts chapter 2. As soon as Jesus ascends, what happens? Peter preaches to the nations, and the nations come. Remember how the peoples were from all these different nations? It's the greater work. The greater work that you and I are called to do is to see the conversion of men and women through the preaching of the gospel. You see this in Acts chapter 10, when the Gentiles were included. That was a greater work. So we're not looking for more miracles or more flashes in the pan. Get square in your mind. Miracles are temporal demonstrations of physical power, always buttressing spiritual truths that are eternal. I don't depreciate a miracle. I love miracles. We pray for people to be healed, but we pray for the greater cause of what the miracle is supporting. So the greater work is not more flashes in the pan. It's more declaring of the greatness of God in Christ and calling people to faith that they might move from death to life. I mean, I mean, to take a dead soul and to preach the gospel to it in word and deed and to have them turn their lives to Christ, that is the greatest work. And that is what we're called to do in this year. I mean, don't you marvel over Jesus, though, and his humility? That he would have us do the greater works? I mean, don't you marvel over Jesus taking such a bit part, and I mean that somewhat facetiously? I mean, Jesus' ministry is rather small. I mean, you have the ministry of Charles Spurgeon and, and Billy Graham and the great names over the history of the church. They all had bigger ministries than Jesus. I mean, the, the, the preachers of today, the Internet Sensations, the rock stars we love—they all have bigger ministries than Jesus, and Jesus is satisfied that we would be doing the greater works. I mean, doesn't don't you marvel over his his eternal humility, not just in taking flesh and dying, but even now supporting the church as she walks in the greater works? Can you not rejoice with me that we don't need the visual presence of Jesus for the kingdom to advance? that it is sufficient that he is seated at the right hand of God? Can you not marvel with me that, that, that we don't need him here like they needed him? The disciples thought, we need you here. He says, no, it's better that I go away because I send the Spirit. I mean, can you, can you rest with me that there is no work that you will be called to do that you can't? That with him at the right hand, fueling your efforts, there is no work. What could you be called to do that he is insufficient to enable you to do. I mean, can you not extend yourselves this year? Can you not attempt greater things for God, knowing knowing that he has promised you will do greater works? I mean, can you not attempt these greater things for him this year? You know, my, my prayer has been that this year we would be a people that moves with a greater enthusiasm for these greater works than our greater works, in other words, you know many of us are kingdom builders here. you know you have much that you want to do this year in terms of your family, perhaps your business, perhaps your education, perhaps your future, and you really have some seriously high minded goals for what you want this year, and I think many of those things can be very good, but where are the works of God in your plan for this year i mean can you not join with me and ask God for grace? What are the good works that you want me to walk in? What are the greater works you want me to do? I mean, is it, is it something perhaps you ought to consider some ministry in this church that you can be involved in? Uh, perhaps it's, it's just with our new neighbors. We have a, a senior home coming next to us. We have Thales Academy uh, right next door. We have all these apartments now. I've been walking around here just wondering, God, what greater work do you have for us here? We're going to have probably a 1,000 people in our back door. What's that for? I mean, God, you're great, you're powerful. What greater work might we do that would require you to believe this promise that you're going to do greater works than he has done? Now, I know when I say these things, you're thinking, I'm not making a ministry push here. I'm just trying to honor this promise that says, you're going to do what I do, but even greater. And, and so does that intimidate you does that kind of cause you concern they're going to ask us to do door to door They're going to ask us to do something. I can't do I, I don't want you to feel that way I, I I will say this that I think the disciples did feel that way. I think they were intimidated I think they're thinking we can't do what you do let alone greater things than what you do And I think many of you feel the same way we're like goodness gracious at least they had them We don't even have them here in the physical presence. How can we do greater things? Well, he gives us two reasons this is what I want you to see in the text. You're always looking for specific words in the text. Look, look in uh, 12, the end of 12. He says, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. We've talked about that. And greater works than these he will do. So that's the promise he gives us. You heard, you've you heard me explain that promise. We're going to do his works and even greater works. And then he gives us the reasoning. So this is what I want you to lean on right now. So, so a reason or a cause gives you Gives you hope and motivation to do it. The word because, because I'm going to the Father. And we kind of touched on that. Jesus is encouraging his disciples who are scared and intimidated. And he's saying, I'm going to go to the Father so you can do these things. In other words, because Jesus, John's gospel, by the way, mentions very little about the ascension, but it mentions it here. That Jesus has now ascended. That's what it means. He's gone to the Father at the right hand of God. And if God has accepted him, then the work that Jesus has done is now fully accepted by God. So guess what? We are now justified. We are now being sanctified. We're now adopted as children. And so he's saying, you can do these greater works. I don't even care what the Lord brings before you. You can do them because he is at the right hand of God. In other words, in his fr- first in his death, he has defeated the dominion of sin. You are genuinely forgiven. In his resurrection... He was raised from the dead, and so Jesus has defeated death. We will live forever with God. So your lives are not here now, but forever. In him going through the air to the Father, he has sent the Spirit to dwell among us, empowering us, strengthening us. And now seated at the right hand of God, he has all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. And here's what he says in Ephesians. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. He is far above rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, the fullness, excuse me, which is his body, the fullness of him fills all in all. So what he's saying is, at the right hand of God, Jesus has all authority and power, and he's utilizing it for the church. So your works are not separate from his works. He is working through you, but he's working through you from a place of authority. So now your works that you are called to do, these greater works, are through his power, which is evidenced in his position. So the first reason you can have hope in doing greater works is that his position before God is without parallel. And he now is working through you to accomplish his purposes. That's the first encouragement, that his position before God is one of of authority. So let me ask you, does it not not cause us to wonder why do we fear so much over doing things for God? Why do we fear so much about saying this or speaking here or serving here? Why do we fear? I mean, what is it about? Is it our forgetfulness that he's at the right hand? Is it our disbelief that we really don't believe he has the power? Why wouldn't we feel like, I'm going to take the field. Of course I'm going to do the greater works. The one who's working through me now is at the very right hand of God. So is it disbelief for you? Is it fear of man? Is it forgetfulness? Is it distractiveness? But that was an encouragement for us to do these greater works. But then there's the second encouragement he gives us. Look in 13 and 14. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this, these two verses really need a lot of explanation. Um, I mean, I've seen these verses. This is like, a rubber band for people. I mean, they just stretch it and use it. I mean, it advances new car purchases. It advances new wives. it, it I've heard the craziest things, and guess what? The stake gets driven in these two verses. So what in the world do these mean? I mean, it is a bold and brash kind of promise that he has given to us. Anything, whatever, I mean, those are kind of comprehensive terms, I think you'd agree with me. So what does he mean here? I mean, is this a blank check for us to procure whatever we need, finances, physical healings, healings of cancer, new marriages, better kids? I mean, w- w- what are these things for? Well, well, this is where I, I, I want to I understand him in context, and I want you to understand him so that you will have confidence when you pray. Um so many of your versions don't have it starts out in verse 13 with whatever mine does ESV and and sadly they didn't translate a greek word and i don't know why they didn't but what what how it reads is greater works than these will he do because i'm going to the father and whatever you ask in my name so the word and connects it to the previous So what he's saying is that this promise of whatever and anything is tied to the help that we need to do these greater works. Do You see what I'm driving at. These disciples are terrified. They're saying we won't be able to do this. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to the father. And whatever you need as you begin to do these greater works, whatever you need, ask anything, anything. You you need wisdom. You need strength. You need boldness, you need greater scripture memory, you, you need a greater love for the Father. Whatever you need to walk in these greater works, just ask me, I'll give it to you. Notice the personalness of Jesus in verse 14. He says, ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. So we are actually being in verse 14, being directed to ask Jesus in Jesus' name for Jesus to give us power to do the works that Jesus is going to move through us. And, and, and I, think this, I think this interpretation I don't want to limit God's generosity. I don't want to limit the graciousness of God. But we can't just take this text and just apply it to anything we think we need. There is a place for personal prayer, no doubt. But here, it's for the greater works. You see it also when he says, pray in my name. To pray in the name of Jesus means you're praying in the goals of Jesus. You're praying with the agenda of Jesus. You're praying with the purpose of Jesus. Not only that, but look at what he says in 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, the purpose of our prayer is for God's glory to be manifest in Jesus Christ. So again, that kind of guides and directs the nature of this promise. So what I'm saying here is simply this, that as we look at this year, Jesus has given a bold promise to his church. You will do the works that Jesus did, but greater works. And to those of you who are intimidated by that promise and you have trouble believing it, He's going to give us two reasons. Number one, I'm going to the Father, so there is no limit to my power and glory, and I'm available to you. The posture that I have before you is an open ear as you walk in those greater works that you're called to do. Folks, this is to encourage us to do these things. This is to say, you know what? The neighbor that I have been so intimidated to share my faith with, I'm going to have him over for dinner. It's what Carol and I are trying to do. We had, we had, we, this is a great sermon. We, we had friends over last night. Total unbelievers. Just to have dinner, just to introduce the gospel to them. That's all. Nothing heavy. This is what the gospel is. This is the beauty of Christianity. So wh- what is it that's intimidating you? What's the greater work? Can you not join with me and ask God, God, what greater works do you have? Now, you see this promise, and I know some of you may be thinking, well, hold it, Tom. That, that sounds all well and good. Okay, we're going to do these greater works. He's gone to the Father. We can ask him for anything we need to do these works, and he'll give it to us. So why aren't there more conversions? Why does the church seem so anemic? What, what is the problem here? Well, there's two reasons. Andrew Murray was a, an old pastor, theologian, wrote much on prayer, actually. And he said there's really two reasons why we see the church languishing here. And he says, number one, believing prayer is absent. In other words, we don't pray in faith. We don't. I I mean, we don't pray believing that he's at the right hand and he's able. Now, I don't mean to imply that your prayers, that I'm not trying to make this general application to each of you, uh, but I would ask you to look at your own prayers. Do you pray believing? I mean, do you really pray believing that he has all power? I've asked him for something. He's going to do it. He's going to move in this manner in which I've prayed to advance whatever this greater work is. Here's what Murray says, kind of in a little bit of a chiding to the church. He says, every child of God must learn this lesson. Prayer in the mighty name of Jesus is the only way to share in the mighty power which Jesus has received from his father for his people. It is in this power alone that the believer can do greater works. Without this, our works are human; they're carnal. Effective working needs effective praying. Now, I have to confess to you: this is kind of a, a personal confession. Sometimes I can be a bit of a agnostic with prayer. I, I, I almost fear believing. What, what I mean by that is, I'm often. Afraid to really trust that he's going to answer this because if he doesn't answer it then what does it say about his power or what does it say about my faith? I'm like the kid that's trying to test the ice You know, is it strong enough to support the weight of my faith? You know, I want to stay close to the shore. I want to stay in these general prayers. God bless the church God help those who are sick, you know these general prayers that while I usually don't see them not answered, but I also don't have the joy of specific prayers being answered. And so I've been kind of convicted this week. Can I not believe that his words are true and right? And that if I pray for you, so I've been praying for you this week. I said, God, there is a greater work to move a people in a deeper love for you. That's a great work. To, To bring the lost to faith and to move the saved into a greater love for you. That is a great work. That's an eternal work. I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus that that would happen for you this week. That's been my prayer for you, that you would have a greater love for God. You would have a greater desire to work, that we as a church would be more effectively intersecting, not just the local community here, but those with whom you have relationships right now, that you would be bolder in the office. You would be bolder with your family. You would be bolder in your community, that you would do these greater works, that you would be convicted, you would be encouraged by this promise. What is the content of your prayers? Do you pray for greater works? If this can be done, whether you're 98 or whether you're 12, do you pray for the greater works? What is the content of your prayer? Is it more about just specific needs? As I said, there's a place for that. I would remind you, though, in the prayer that the Lord taught us, the model of prayer, our Father, we do pray for our daily bread. It does follow praying for the kingdom and praying for his will. So do you pray for these greater works? Do you pray for a greater boldness? Do you pray for a greater hunger for the lost to know him? Do you pray, God, give me a lo- give me a heart that is pained over the lost? That's a great work, to really weep over those who don't know Christ. J.C. Ryle, another English pastor in the 19th century, said, how is it that many Christians have so little? How is it that they go halting and mourning on the way to heaven and enjoy so little peace and show so little strength in Christ's service? The answer is simple and plain. They have not because they ask not. They have little because they ask little. They are no better than they are because they do not ask their Lord to make them better. Our languid desires are the reason of our languid performances. We are not straightened in the Lord, but in ourselves. Happy are they who never forget the words, Open your mouth wide. And I will fill it. God says that in Psalm eighty-one, ten. He that does much for Christ and leaves his mark in this world will always prove to be one who prays much. Just as your own litmus test, to the degree that you pray, what does that reflect on your belief in this promise? And is the content of your prayer more driven around you or around him and his kingdom? That's one reason why I think this promise doesn't seem so material to us. Secondly, is believing works. In other words, just not believing, believing works are absence. Jesus is calling us to pray here, but he's not just calling us to sit in our prayer closet and pray. He's calling us to work. He says you'll do greater works. In other words, Jesus grants the free use of his name only in conjunction with the works that we're called to do. So we're not, to use, we're not called to exercise this free use of his name apart from advancing these greater works. And so ask yourself, this year, what will I be doing? How will I be praying? How will I combine works and prayer? You know, Martin Luther kind of summed it up beautifully. He said this, he says, Pray as if everything depended upon God. Work as if everything depended upon you. I know that's a paradox. I know that it's kind of trying to get these two things to match, and it's very difficult to do. But, but the promise stands firm. You will do his works and greater works. And the reason you'll do them and the confidence that you ought to have is because he's gone to the Father and because he's accessible to you now. And so let me pray for us that we might be asking God for greater and greater opportunities to do these works Folks, in 2013, you're going to put your hand to many things. What will be remaining in five years? What will remain that you do? What will remain in five years that you do this year? I try to make decisions that way as I've crested certain transitions in my life. I want to make a decision based on will I be satisfied with this decision in five years? Will it have an impact in five years? So be mindful, people, that you don't spend all your energies and all your efforts and use all your intelligence and exercise all the power that you have on things that will not even be here in five years. Rather, the greater works that will be here forever. Let me pray for us, and then we'll prepare our hearts for communion. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the promise that you've given to us through your Son that we will do these works, Father. We confess before you that we right now have trouble believing this. And we confess a faithlessness that exists in our hearts that we can do greater works. We, we, we confess a fear and trepidation over really believing you will give us what we ask, even when we ask rightly. Father, forgive us for these things. Grant to us the grace and a full measure of the spirit that we might hear these specific words of our king, ask me anything in my name and I'll do it. Father, would you bolster our weakened souls with grace that we might begin to walk in light of this grand and this glorious promise. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.